All right, let's take our Bibles this evening, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we will draw to a close our study in this little book. And actually, we've studied both 1 and 2 Thessalonians, talking about living in the last days, um, as Paul deals with some very important doctrines and teachings regarding both the rapture and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not necessarily going to talk about those tonight, but our study is going to be confined to the last couple of verses in 2 Thessalonians, and we'll read there in just a moment. So if you can find that, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we'll jump right in. And I think tonight, to just give the full uh, context, we're going to start reading in verse number 6 and go all the way down to the end of the chapter. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse number 6, Paul writes, the Bible tells us, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which ye received of us. For yourselves know how, we ought, how ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Heavenly Father, would you help us tonight, help me tonight as, Lord, as your will, your desire that I open up God's word, your word to us, to explain the sense and the meaning, to make application to our lives today. And Lord, I, I don't uh, treat that responsibility lightly, and I ask for your help tonight to be able to accurately, as well as in a way that is spirit-filled, present your word in a way that's honoring and pleasing to you. I pray for all of us in the congregation tonight that we would approach your word in a way with um, hearts that are teachable, that are open, that are wanting to hear your perspective for us and for our lives. And may we learn something, but also apply something to our lives, even in this next coming week. Bless our time together. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. This uh, church in the city of Thessalonica was really a, a remarkable church. Uh, it was a pretty young church at this time, even receiving this second letter only about a year to two years uh, old when Paul wrote um, this book of 2 Thessalonians. But already they had shown great growth and, and maturity in this church. We know from the book of 1 Thessalonians some things about this church that makes it remarkable. 
It was an evangelistic church. They were passionate about reaching people with the gospel. Uh, They were a steadfast church in the face of tribulation and persecution that they were facing for their faith. They stood and they stood steadfast in the face of that persecution. They were a reproducing church that was raising up God-called men. Men that we know, we read about in in the Bible. Men like Jason and Aristarchus and Secundus. Men like that who were from this area, from this church, that were raised up, were trained, they were saved, and, and they entered into the, the ministry. And, and we even know that even a church this young had multiple pastors according to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12 and 13. We learned that. And so really for the age of two, maybe three years old at most, they, they had accomplished already some remarkable things. A wonderful, wonderful church. But it was not a perfect church. And you know how the saying goes. If you find a perfect church, whatever you do, don't join it because you'll ruin it. And that is true. It wasn't a perfect church. We saw some doctrinal misunderstandings regarding the second coming. Paul dealt with those already in this book. He's addressed those. Here in chapter 3, as we looked at last week, Paul then addresses a practical error that had arisen. Those who were living disorderly. I'll remind you from last week that these were not lost people, they were brethren. They're described as brethren. And these brethren had found a spiritual excuse to avoid working. It was a desire of the flesh that was veiled in a spiritual sounding uh, platitude or excuse. They were not working at all. And they had descended into uh, this, this thing that we talked about last week, living off of the labors and the efforts of other people around them. And specifically, this was physical in nature. They were not working. They were not taking care of their, their own basic needs. But we also applied it in the spiritual sense that uh, we ought not to be living and be content living off of the labors of other people. We ought not to be content living off the spiritual efforts of other people. Instead, we take the exhortation in verse 12 that with quietness, that's the rest of the busybody spirit, with quietness we work and we eat, we enjoy the fruits of that labor. This lack of work had descended into this idea of being busybodies. They had no time to work, but they had plenty of time to diagnose and catalog all the problems that were around them. The issues of everyone else's life. And they were literally draining the church, both physically and spiritually. Kind of like sucking the, the physical life and the spiritual life out of this church. Now I want you to imagine uh, a little bit. Go, go, go back in time and you are now a member of the church at Thessalonica. Now, in our scenario, all right, you're not one of those disorderly ones, all right? You're not one of them. You're a hard worker, right? You, you, you've got your priorities in order. It's obvious to you by this time that there, are, there is a specific problem in this area in the church. It's so obvious, as a matter of fact, that this issue, this problem, had been communicated back to Paul, who was not necessarily physically there, 
but he knew about the problem. It was, it was that obvious. So you're a member of this church. There's, a, there's an apparent problem that's in the church. There are people who are living as they ought not to live. There are people who are, as, as we read in, I think it's verse 6, they, there are people who are choosing not to follow the teachings that they had been taught. They had chosen not to do that which they knew was right. But you're a church member. You're not one of them. What are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to respond? Both personally in your own life and corporately as a church, how are you supposed to respond to this disorder in your church? I think we find here, and specifically we're going to focus our study tonight from verse 13 on, but I think we find here some critically important truths that can help us. I hope tonight that you're thankful for our church. I'm thankful for our church. But we're not naive tonight. We know that there are people and there will be people who will choose to live in a way that is contrary to what we are taught. It's contrary to what we see pretty clearly and plainly in the Scriptures. It's going to happen. It probably is happening. Let's not be naive tonight. The question is, how do we respond to that? How do we respond in a proper way to disorder? And so tonight I'd like to talk to you a little bit about responding to disorder It's very unique, and this seems to happen to me a lot. So if this helps you, uh, then it's free. It's it's bonus tonight. Whenever I run across a verse and my brain says, well, that doesn't make any sense there. Every single time I think that and I dig a little bit deeper, it's kind of like, wow, that really fits here. And if there's anything verse 13 has come alive, like, wow, this really fits right here. It almost seems out of place because he's talking about those who are walking disorderly. He's admonishing those who are walking disorderly. And then in verse 14, he's going to follow up with a little bit more on that issue. But in verse 13, he says, But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. The first truth in this text about responding to disorder is the reality of weariness. Paul's warning them. Don't be weary. And of course, when we see a a warning, we know that it's important because if it wasn't really a danger, we wouldn't really need to be warned about it. So this this idea, this issue of being weary and weary in well-doing is a real danger that can take place. And there's a couple reasons for this. The first reason is the fact that these believers, those who are wanting to do right, were living in contrast. You see the conjunction that starts verse 13, but ye, brethren, that word but is a contrasting conjunction. He's just talked about those who are walking and living disorderly, those who are, in this specific case, refusing to work and they're sponging off the the labors of other people. Those people over here, he's just got done describing. Then he says, but ye, brethren, you're different. There's a contrast. You're not walking disorderly. They were the ones who were working hard. Perhaps they were the ones who were laboring physically and spiritually in the church. They didn't need the exhortation in verse number 12 to, to, with quietness, work and eat their own bread. That's what they were were doing. 
Their lives were in stark contrast to those who were walking disorderly. They were different. And you know how it is. Being different is often difficult. It's difficult to be different. It's easy to just go along with the crowd, go along with the flow. But when you're different, it's difficult. You struggle with the feeling that many of God's servants have had when they thought, am I the only one? Am I the only one who's working hard? Am am I the only one who's laboring with with travail and labor like Paul talked about earlier on in this this, uh, chapter? Am I the only one who cares about these spiritual issues? Am I the only one who wants to do what's right? Even in a church, this is very much a real possibility. You're living in contrast. Now, these people that are different than you, we're not talking about different as in out there in the world. Lost people. Now, verse 6 makes it pretty plain. These are brethren, fellow believers who are choosing to live their lives differently. There is a real danger, there's a, there's a real possibility here of the feeling of loneliness, even in God's church. Even in this local New Testament assembly, there is a very real danger of loneliness, and it is loneliness that leads then to weariness. It was Elijah, the prophet, Elijah's loneliness that led to his weariness. It led to him fainting there. In front of God, God, just kill me now because I'm the only one who's standing for what's right. We know that wasn't necessarily true. And you know what? The loneliness we feel is hardly ever factual. But the feeling is real. The weariness is real. When we do feel like I'm the only one. This is the reality of weariness. But he says in verse 13, But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. Persevere in the weariness. Overcome the weariness. This word weary comes from two different Greek words. One means to be weak, to lack that strength. And the other one means to faint. It's the idea of running out of strength and quitting, laying it aside. The word weary means to become discouraged, to lose heart, to give up. It has the idea of being utterly spiritless. There used to be something driving that labor and and it just, just feels like it's not there anymore. And this warning of discouragement, this warning of weariness, this warning of being faint is in the context of well-doing. Doing what was right. Acting uprightly. They were the ones doing what was right. They were the ones following Paul's example of labor and travail that he had set out before them. They were the ones saying, this is how Paul lived, so this is how I'm going to live. They were the ones working hard. They were not content to live off the the physical labors of others. They were not content to live off the spiritual labors of other people. And because of that, it was discouraging. 
And you know what the reality is? It is discouraging when we look around and we see brethren, we see believers who are not living the way that they really ought to live. That has an impact. And let me just say, you as a member of this church, or even as an attender of this church, you need to realize that your, your lifestyle, the way you live, how you choose to go about your business, has an impact on the body. It has an impact on this church. We have this you know, very individualistic, independent sort of spirit in our mind. Well, I can do whatever I think is right and I'll have to answer for God. And that is true. You, you will have to do that. But how you live has an impact on the spiritual health of this body. That's just the way that it is. And so these brethren who were trying to do what was right were discouraged because they looked around and they felt like they were the only ones. They toyed with the questions in their mind. Perhaps you have toyed with. I know I have at times. Is it really worth it to do what's right? Is it really worth it to continue on doing what I believe God really wants me to do? Is it really worth it? Is all of the inconvenience worth it? Is the lack of recognition, the lack of appreciation for what I'm trying to do for the Lord, is it really worth it? Have you ever had those questions in your mind? And perhaps, in the case of these brethren, they were the ones being sponged off of. Those who were choosing not to work and, you know, they needed some food, they had to take advantage of somebody. Perhaps these were the very individuals they were taking advantage of. Those are the ones who are showing up at their house unannounced for, you know, mealtime. Didn't have anywhere else to go, so I thought I'd drop by just to say hello. And oh, I've got some, uh, I've got some juice to share with you about all the things that are going on in the church. Disheartening. Discouraging. Paul tells them in verse 13, Be not weary in well-doing. So all of you kids in school, that word be, what is that? Is it an action verb or a linking verb? Well, you know, be indicates a linking verb, and specifically, it's a state of being. As a linking verb, it operates as a, as a state of being. So what Paul is, is telling them is he's saying, I'm encouraging you to choose a different state to live in. Now, not like Pennsylvania New, or New Jersey or something like that. I won't say anything about New Jersey. I was just tempted. I'm just going to let that go. All right? Paul's saying, don't be weary. Don't live in that state. And you'll notice he doesn't say anything else other than don't be weary. And I was thinking about this today. Go ahead and turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. When it comes to this weariness, this idea of discouragement, how do we confront or overcome weariness. When we sense that, that, that we, we're becoming weary, when we sense we're becoming discouraged, we're looking around and seeing, you know, all these people are not doing what we think they should be doing. It's discouraging. But how do we deal with it? What do we do about it? Well, Paul talks about this issue on a variety of different occasions. The Scripture speaks to this um, in a bunch of different places. One of those is Hebrews 12. And I think I want to show a couple of these to you because it'll help you find a way out 
when it comes to weariness, when it comes to discouragement. The first, the first way out, the first uh, reminder is a reminder regarding our focus. Now, this is a familiar text. You're, you, you've heard it before. But look in verse number one. It says, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So there we are, running the race. We're doing, try, doing what we think is right. We're trying to follow the Lord and running our race. Verse 2, though, deals with our focus. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be, there's that word, wearied, and faint in your mind. In other words, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is in order not to faint, in order to escape this idea of weariness, consider and consider Him. Focus on Jesus. And he gives an illustration because I think that's kind of a Christian sort of buzzword, buzz phrase, you know, just look to Jesus. What does that mean? Well, he lays it out in verse number two. We look to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, and what did he do? What's the example that we're following? Well, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. So just as Jesus kept his eyes on the joy that was set before him, and what was that joy? Well, it was accomplishing the Father's will. It was delivering salvation to to you and I, making it possible that we could know Him. For the joy that was set before Him, Christ endured the cross. And He despised the shame. And that word despise doesn't necessarily mean hate. It has the idea that He didn't think that much of it. He said it at naught, is uh, the particular definition. He saw the price... And instead of the price being super high, he saw it as, it's a price, it's going to need to be paid, but it's not that big of a deal. Compared to the joy, no, it's not. They're not in the same ballpark. So just as Jesus kept his eyes on the joy that was set before him, he diminished, he despised the shame that he would have to experience. We need to do the same thing. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus despite the cost of living for Him. In fact, we despise the cost. We don't see it as that big of a deal. So think about tonight. Why, why do I do the things that I, I do? Why do I serve the Lord in His church? And I hope you're a member of this church. Why do I do and serve in the areas where I serve? Why do I live the way that I live? Is Christ really my motivation? Is he really my focus? Or am I focused on success? Am I focused on being recognized for the labor that I I do? Am I focused on being appreciated? On being loved because of the things that I do? Or is Christ really the main motivation? Is he my focus? It's a good question 
when you feel the weariness and the discouragement set in to take a step back and ask yourself. Sometimes that discouragement is just an indication that our focus has been on the wrong things and we got to kind of realign that focus. So the first way we confront and overcome weariness deals with our focus and our focus needs to be on the Lord Jesus Christ. But go to the book of Galatians. The second way that we overcome and confront that weariness is we take a good hard look and examine our perspective. Galatians chapter 6, look there in verse number 7. Again, you will find, you'll see, we'll run across that word weary in this text. In fact, it's probably one that you thought of when we read uh, back in 2 Thessalonians. But look at Galatians 6 and verse 7. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. So there's a promise. If you sow... You will reap, verse 8, He that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. There's a promise here. And so, verse 9, Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Our perspective is important. We need in our service for the Lord, in our decision to do what was right. And these believers, in in their decision to labor, to work hard, both physically and spiritually, they need to have the proper perspective. And it's not a temporal perspective. It's an eternal perspective. Because there's a promise here. In due season. When is due season? Well, it's whenever God decides is due season. But we know due season will come when eternity comes. We do know that. Now, sometimes that due season happens in this life, and that's, that's great, that's fine. When we're recognized, perhaps we're rewarded, perhaps we're appreciated, but perhaps that doesn't happen in this life. We do know due season is coming, and you are going to reap what you sow in this life. The right that you choose to do, the sacrifice that you choose to make for God, the the things that you lay aside, the weights that you lay aside so you can run your race, there will be an eternal reward. Living and doing what's right in this world today, if we're we're just looking for rewards in the present, then it's going to be easy to become weary. It's going to be easy to faint. Because we lose the perspective that in due season there is a promise from God that we shall reap. Do we believe God's promise or do we not? We shall reap if we faint not. 2 Corinthians kind of says something similar. I'll just read it for you. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. Paul writes, for which cause we faint not. There's that weariness again. We refuse weariness. We faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Notice how he describes the difficulty of living for God. For our light affliction. I don't consider stoning a light affliction. I don't consider being chased out of just about every city that I visit. I don't consider that light. I actually consider, you know, people not doing right, doing, living the same way that I, I do, I consider that heavy. And here Paul is calling this light. Okay, his perspective is important, and he tells us what the perspective is. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, there's that eternal perspective. 
This life is short. It's but for a moment. It works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory as long as we are, or while, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things that are, which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. There is that eternal perspective. If our focus and our perspective is just here on this earth, and we look around and no one, it feels like, okay, feels like no one else is doing what's right. No one, no one else is putting in the effort that I'm putting in. No one else is sacrificing the way I am sacrificing. No one else is meeting my level of commitment. It's not going to be too long. The weariness is probably already setting in if you're thinking that way. But instead we have to kind of pump the brakes. Hold on. Why am I doing this? I'm doing this for Christ. He's my motivation. And there's no rewards. Maybe there's, maybe there's little reward today in the present. But I know there will be reward in the future. And I can follow Paul's admonition to choose a different state to live in. Be not weary in well-doing. There is the reality of weariness. But then in verse 14 and 15, there's also a response to rebellion. Go back to 2 Thessalonians, our text, and look at the response that's prescribed here from Paul, of course, under the inspiration of the Spirit. He says, And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, there are two seemingly exclusive categories of commands that are in these two verses. And we need to be able to balance both of these commands. Specifically, there's four, two on one side, two on the other. The four commands, we could break down to words. We've got note, we've got company or have no company, we've got uh, count, and then we've got admonish. Those are the four action words. That's what we're commanded. So we need to understand what is Paul telling us to do. And depending on your personality, you will probably sort of tend or land one way or the other. You'll you'll kind of naturally go one way or the other. And so I I would challenge you tonight as as we go through these to kind of say, where where do I naturally land? And, and, And God's probably bringing you back, pulling you back over to the balance between these two ideas. So first of all, let's look at the the first command, and that is to note. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man. To note means to observe, to mark, to note for oneself, to take a cautionary, hmm, I noticed something. In fact, that word notice, the root of that is note. We take notice of something. I like this definition. It means to pay special attention to something for the sake of future recall and response. We note that person. In the beginning, this is just a personal note, a a mental note. Of course, we're going to see how this is going to grow into perhaps a corporate issue in just a moment. But uh, this is something we looked at Romans 16, 17 last week. Uh, where, where Paul admonishes the Romans, he says, Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. Mark them. Now, that doesn't go around, that doesn't mean you go around with, 
you know, you know, you put a black mark on their, on their forehead or something, you know, and they are somehow, uh, you know, shunned or something like that. That's not what it's talking about. It's just making a mark. Note that person. Show some, some uh, discernment. Biblical, spirit-filled discernment. Be alert to what's going on around you. It's, I wish this weren't the case, but it is the case. We often have this impression like, well, people in church shouldn't do that. Well, people in church are still people. They're going to make wrong choices. Don't just blindly follow someone because, you know, you sit across from church and you see some things that you like. So, all right, I'm going to do everything that they do. Show some discernment, all right? Note some things. Mark some things. Pray about some things. Let God lead you in a certain way. And specifically, what, they, what were they supposed to note? Well, they were supposed to note those who don't obey. The idea of obeying, obedience, it's, it's listening, it's heeding, it's hearkening. Specifically, this word obey is, is used of a porter whose job was to, to watch the door. And he would hear a knock. And so he would go and, and listen to see who was there. That's the idea of obedience. That we're, we're listening for direction from the Lord so that we can pursue after we can do that which God directs us to do. So we're to, to note those who don't do that. And then he expands upon that in verse 14. If any man obey not our word by this epistle... There's also those who <clears throat> refuse to submit. This epistle, the book of 2 Thessalonians, was God's revelation. It was Holy Spirit inspired the words of God. And there were people in the church of Thessalonica who called themselves brethren, who would read the Bible and choose not to do that which the Bible tells them to do. Okay, this is a reality. This, this happens. And so we ought not to get all like, oh no, this is, t-. I mean, it's not good. But people are people and you know what, we're just the same way when we hear things that we don't necessarily like to apply to our lives. Note those who don't submit. Note those who have a refusal to submit to biblical leadership. I think I would call the Bible biblical leadership, Right? I mean, I would think I would call the Apostle Paul writing under Holy Spirit inspiration. I would call that biblical leadership. Are we, are we to be surprised that there would be people who would not follow biblical leadership um, it, you know, in our day today? It ought, I mean, it shouldn't happen, but it ought not to necessarily surprise us. Note that person. And the reason for the note is later on in the verse, note that man and... Have no company with him. The implications of this idea of having no company, it, the idea is avoiding mixing together. And I think this is important, the, the, the avoidance of being intimate with someone. The avoidance of association or participation with them in doing the things that are wrong. Now, we already pointed out last week, I'm not going to spend a lot of time at it, we don't have time tonight, but there's personal implications of this. It matters who you closely fellowship with. It matters who you share your heart with. Young people, it matters who you're open and honest with. I'm not saying you shouldn't be open and honest with your friends, but you ought to be open and honest with your parents. You ought to be an open book. It matters who you're intimate with. 
And there is, there is a very clear implication here that we're to avoid association with those who are refusing to obey, refusing to submit to godly authority in their lives. Now, we're going to talk about balancing this, okay? But understand, this is where it starts. We're to avoid association, especially in a way that could be interpreted as approval or as participation with them. We may have to be careful where we associate with those individuals because of the implications that we are condoning that we're participating along with, with, with them in areas where we don't feel God wants or where we don't feel God would have us to act. And this, there's personal implications here. But I want you to go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There's also corporate implications. And I, I just want to touch on this briefly. I'm not going to do in any way a thorough study on this. Again, we don't have the time for tonight, but I, we, we need to understand that there are times in, in which this disorderly behavior rises to the level of the need of needing to deal with it corporately as a church. We're talking about church discipline. And the reason why I say that is this, this uh, command of have no company, this verb or this command is only, this word is only used three times in the New Testament. One time in the text that we read, and then twice here in 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 5, you'll probably recognize the context. This is where Paul is clearly laying out the, the process of church discipline for a church member who was committing fornication. He was committing adultery with his, with his father's wife. And of course, that was something that was public. That was something that was very, uh, very wrong. Um, and Paul is telling them, you need to deal with that. And notice the language here. There's a connection with our text in, in 2 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. It says, I wrote unto you in, in an epistle not to company. There's that word. Not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then ye must needs go out of the world. Can I say tonight, I don't fully understand verse 10, but what verse 10 seems to be saying is that there's something especially dangerous about uh, associating with believers who are choosing to sin and to rebel and not to submit. And it's separating it from friendships with those that we're trying to reach with the gospel. That's what he's saying in verse 10. He says, I'm telling you not to company with fornicators, but yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world. For then, I mean, you might as well, you got to leave the world if you're not going to associate with anybody who sins out in the world. That's what he's saying in verse 10. But now he brings it back, verse 11. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother. Here we go. He's, re, he's revisiting this again. If any man that's called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. And the idea of eating was close, personal, intimate fellowship. As it still is in most places in our world, sharing a meal is something that's significant together. The fellowship there is significant. So be careful, especially about believers who claim to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, but yet they're not refusing to submit to godly authority in their life. Be careful. Verse 12, for what, I ha- what have I to do with, or sorry, for what have I to do to judge? 
them also that are without? Do you not judge them that are within? But them that are without God judgeth, judgeth, therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. And of course we understand what Paul is saying is this is biblical, corporate, church discipline. And the Bible lays out very particular stipulations when it comes to excluding someone from membership. Issues like the teaching of false doctrine, the disregarding of church authority, the causing contentions and strife, uh, immoral uh, conduct, uh, going to law, legal activity against brothers in the church. These are all things in the scriptures that God lays out. These are areas where church discipline should be administered. And, of course, that's not something that's very popular in our day. It's not, not something that's really practiced at all in our day, but it is something that's in the Bible that, that churches are commanded to do. And the purpose of that is very simple. Having no company, a separation in, in our relationship has a purpose. And in our text, the purpose is that they be ashamed. Now, we might jump to imagining in our mind the idea of embarrassing someone. That we're doing this to embarrass them. That is actually not what the word ashamed means. Tell, tell me, parents, have you ever done this? Right, you're in a setting, and your kids start horsing around a little bit. They're not aware of these, the, the appropriateness of the setting. And so they start causing a little bit of a stir. Perhaps they're horsing around and, and uh, you know, playing with each other. And then you turn, and you give them a look. And then they see that look. Oh, so they're, ha ha, you know, and then they see the look. Oh, that's literally what this word ashamed means. It means to invert. It means to bring about a a reverence, to turn about. It's that look that reminds them, oh, I'm not supposed to be doing this right now, am I? And I hope you kids respond to those looks in that way instead of just mom, dad. You respond, oh, yeah, I need to change So the purpose is repentance. It is change. And when believers refuse to follow the command to note and have no company, they limit the potential change. So if God says the design of this separation of withdrawing, the design of this is to bring them to repentance. If we don't do that, we limit the process. You see how that, that works? We stand in the way. We impede that process. If we don't say, you know what, so-and-so, they're not a good influence on me. It's very clear that they have their mind made up. They, they, they know what is being taught. They, they know what, what, uh, what the Bible says and what's being taught about what the Bible says. And they just say, you know what, I am not doing that. I am not submitting. And those are the ones that we have to say, you know what, I'm going to limit I'm not talking about, we're going to balance this in just a second. I'm not talking about mistreating them. I'm not talking about refusing biblical love. I am saying I'm going to avoid that intimate fellowship because evil communications do corrupt good manners. I'm going to be affected. So that's on this side. Let's balance it out because he does that in verse 15. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Here's the fourth word, count. The idea of counting is considering in our minds. It's reckoning in our brains. And we're supposed to reckon. We're supposed to count them. We're supposed to consider them not as an enemy. They are not an enemy. 
This is a real danger when we get discouraged. We look at other believers who, are, who we think are not doing what they're supposed to do, and all of a sudden battle lines get drawn, and it's us versus them. That's a wrong attitude. Here Paul is specifically warning about that. Don't do that. Can I say that biblical church discipline is not excommunication? That's false doctrine. Biblical dis- di- discipline and church discipline is not shunning. That's false doctrine from false religions. Okay? But it is the, the separation of close, intimate fellowship for the purpose of bringing about repentance and restoration. We actually have an example of, of this practiced in a wrong way in the book of 3 John. Do you remember Diotrephes? Diotrephes was one that John warned against, and this was a man who was at the very least a, a leader in his church, probably even a pastor in, his, in that church. And John says, Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. And the idea that this guy was, you talk about trigger happy. I mean, if he didn't like anything, you're gone. You're out of there. All right? It's you versus me. We're enemies. I'm going to win. You're gone. That's a wrong attitude. That's a wrong spirit. And, th- and that was from a leader. Okay? Had a wrong spirit. And we can have a wrong spirit. Don't count him as an enemy. Rather, instead, admonish him. Instruct. Warn. Teach. Exhort. Provide instruction that would be necessary to correct behavior. You need to actually invest in their lives. Take the time to talk to them. Take the time to to warn them. Can I say something tonight? And I don't mean to be mean. I just got to make personal application to my life. It's amazing how quick we are to point out problems in other people's lives. But when it comes to actually lovingly coming alongside them and teaching them and instructing and warning them, oh, no, someone else can do that. I'm just here to tell you about all the the things that aren't right. Well, if you're not willing to do anything about that situation, if you're not willing to try to step in and help, then (laughs) Lino said it, not me. Yeah, he said, what good are you? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And really that rises to the level. Like, are you, are you willing to go alongside that person and, and try to teach them to see if it is just a misunderstanding or whether it is just a, a, a lack of knowledge and not... Re- we just we jump to the... It's rebellion. Do we know that to be the case? Have we actually instructed them and taught them? Perhaps they just don't know and we just assume that they do. Admonish. Now, honestly, I never saw... Matthew 18 and verse 17 in this way, but it just clicked for me because originally what I was thinking is this doesn't sound like these two verses go together. They sound like they conflict because Jesus said, and he's talking about church discipline, Jesus said, and if he neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church, but if he neglect to hear the church, there's the church discipline, then let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Now, when I hear heathen man and publican, my brain just immediately goes, shun. Wait, what is Jesus saying? Well, he was saying that 
they're to treat that believers were to treat that individual as a lost person. How are Christians supposed to treat a lost person? We're supposed to love them and look for opportunities to preach the gospel to them, to give them truth. So if we're treating a brother in this way, we're supposed to love them and look for specific opportunities to give them the truth. It all makes sense. It fits together. Of course, it's God's word. It's my understanding that's the problem. As always, right? Admonish. Admonish. This is the response to the rebellion. And like I said earlier, we're going to tend one way or the other. It's good to know ourselves, to know, okay, this is how, how the direction I naturally go. I need to maybe uh, balance that out a little bit. This is the response, the response to rebellion. Let me point out one more thing tonight, and that's in verses 16 through 18, and this is the resource, the resource of the Lord. I know what you'll say. Well, this is just the standard greeting. It's not necessarily in the context. I think there is, though, some helpful lessons, even in this area, uh, of dealing with people who disagree or who uh, you know, decide to live in a different way, dealing with the discouragement and the weariness that comes from it. You notice how, what Paul points out. He says in verse 16, Now the Lord of peace himself... Give you peace always, by all means, the Lord be with you. I don't think it's any mistake that that immediately follows, verse 15, the admonishing and treating this individual not as an enemy, not as, as, as if they're, they're hated or they're an adversary, but treating them as a brother and then trying to instruct them, not just avoiding the issue, oh, we're not going to talk about the issue, but actually looking for opportunities to instruct them. And then immediately he follows up talking about peace. Peace and God's peace should always be our goal. God is the source of peace. He says the Lord of peace himself. It's him. He is the Lord of peace and he's the giver of peace. Give you by all means. What a wonderful phrase that is. That if we'll be open to it, God will by all means try to minister peace to us. Even when we're dealing with weariness and discouragement and frustration and we're thinking about quitting and walking away, God can give us peace if we're open to that peace. He's the source and giver of peace. He's also the presence of peace. You notice that phrase at the end of verse 16, the Lord be with you all. The Lord be with you all. To the believer, we have the promise. The Lord will never leave thee or forsake thee. When there are problems and issues in the church, this is the peace that we are to seek after. Peace. This is a resource. It doesn't come from us. It comes from the Lord. But we need to be open to receiving that peace, embracing that peace, seeking that peace. Then he says in verse 17, the salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The second resource is the resource of grace. This idea of grace and grace coming from the Lord and the grace that we need, well, this is something that was personally written by Paul. Most of his epistles were written by, a we would call it a secretary, someone who was doing the job of writing that which is dictated by Paul. So most of Paul's epistles are verbally spoken, and he would have someone write those down for him. 
And then at the end, here in this epistle specifically, Paul says, all right, give me the letter. And he begins writing in verse 17. It's personally written. It's in a different font, all right? Fonts kind of make it stand out. You're reading this letter. The font just changed. And now it's Paul's handwriting. He's saying, I am writing this. This is personally written. This is how important I think this is. And of course, if you're familiar with Paul's epistles, he ends almost every single one of his epistles in this specific way. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is so significant that Paul wrote it himself. In order to overcome weariness, in order to deal with problems, in order to deal with discord and issues between people, we must have God's help. We must have God's grace, His help when we don't deserve it. It was personally written, and it was routinely written. We already pointed this out, but he, points, he says, this is the token in every epistle, so I write. I, I, every single time, I close my epistle in this sort of way, because this is that important. We need God's grace. And the only way to cut off God's grace, what does James say? God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As soon as we start thinking that we've got all the answers, that we know how to do this, that, that we've got it figured out, we get the resistance of God instead of the grace of God, what we really need, the help. I want to encourage you tonight. You can bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to spend a few moments tonight thinking about how God would have us to apply what we've what we've seen, what we've read. I want to ask you two questions, and maybe it would be good to ask the Lord these questions as well. The first question is this. Do you find yourself in a state of weariness? A state of weariness that's causing you to think about fainting, walking away, giving up, throwing up your hands and saying, there's no use to this, I'm out. I can't do it anymore. Do you find yourself in that state tonight? Ask the Lord. Father, would you, would you show me? Am, am I getting weary in well-doing? Am I getting tired and discouraged because no one else seems to be doing the things that I truly and honestly believe are right? Am I allowing that to weigh me down? Am I allowing that to cause me to consider walking away? Stepping away from laboring, from ministering, from physical labor to provide my needs, but then also spiritual labor to provide the needs of my church family. Do you find yourself in the state of weariness? The first question. And then in the second question, how can I, and I would challenge you to ask the Lord this, how can, how can I, Lord, be more purposeful in my relationships with others in the church. My relationship with the brethren. It's easy again to sit back and criticize, look down, point out all the things that you don't think other people are doing right. But are you taking the step to come alongside and to admonish, to teach, to warn, to disciple? If God's given you the discernment to see the issue, perhaps a need seen is an assignment given. 
And you ought to go and be more purposeful in establishing some relationships so that you can teach that which God has taught you and showed you, you can show to someone else. You might be surprised. Those people who you say, ah, they don't want to hear it, they actually do. Someone in love will treat them in that sort of way. Ask the Lord those two questions. Let them minister to your heart and we'll close in prayer just a moment.